It's the middle arrived. of the night. Somebody get up and make me a sandwich. Yeah, really, exactly. <laughs> and he, he, you know, speaking of that, he, he does seem to be threatening to complain to the manager a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's, he's Karen. He wants to yes, space Karen. The, he wants to speak yeah. to your supervisor, and he wants <laughs> he wants a meal. and welcome to season three of Star's End, a podcast dedicated to Isaac Asimov's classic sci-fi series, Foundation. We are reading Asimov's fiction this season, but we'll keep you informed on show news for Apple TV's season two. While we all wait for that, the three of us will be here with our own inimitable take on Asimov's universe. Please join us. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to episode four of season three of the Star's End podcast. Today we're going to get back to talking about Prelude to Foundation and a couple of the sections there. Mycogen and Sunmaster, where Harry and Doors travel to the Mycogen sector of Trantor. But first, we actually have some news about season two of the Apple Plus TV show, which after all is what this podcast is dedicated to. Dan, lay it on us. What do we got about season two? Okay, so here's our official... Apple TV Plus Minute. Do, 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 do. All right. So um, this week, it seemed that whoever is in charge of publicity for the Foundation TV show sent out a press release to lots and lots of different websites around the net who all repeated it <laughs> in more or less the same format. So I'm going to uh, just not read through everything that's here uh, online, but I am going to read through the list of new cast announcements with a description of the roles that they are going to be playing in season two. And you'll see in a minute that this gives us a lot of clues on what season two is going to look like. So here are our new cast members. Uh, Isabella Laughland as Brother Constant, a cheerfully confident cleric whose job is to evangelize the Church of the Galactic Spirit across the Outer Reach. Constant is a true believer whose courage and passion make her hard not to love. Colvinder Gear as Polly Verisoff, high cleric of the Church of the Galactic Spirit. Whip smart and sardonic, he's also a terrible drunk. Intelligent enough to see the path he's on, but too cynical to change. Sandra Yi Senchin Diver as Enjoiner, Enjoiner Ru, the beautiful, politically savvy conciliar to Queen Sarath, a former courtesan to Cleon XVI. Ru parlayed her status to become a royal counselor. Ella Ray Smith as Queen Sarath of Cloud Dominion. Used to being underestimated, Sarath employs it to her advantage 
charming her way into the imperial palace with biting wit, all while on a secret quest for revenge. Dimitri Leonidas as Hober Mallow, a master trader with a sarcastic personality and questionable morals, who is summoned against his will to serve a higher selfless cause. Ben Daniels as Bel Rios, the last great general of the superliminal fleet and would-be conqueror of the Foundation. Bell is noble to a fault, but his fealty to the Galactic Empire is waning. Holt McCallany as Warden Jaeger Fount, the current Warden of Terminus and guardian of its citizens against external threats. Mikhail Persbrandt as the Warlord of Calgam, a monster of a man, coiled with muscle and possessing powerful psychic abilities, and fueled by hate in his quest to take over the galaxy. Rachel House as Telem Bond, mysterious leader of the Mentalics, and Nimrat Kaur as Yana Selden, with no other description. So have they combined the mule into the Warlord of Calgon? Well. Or they're just calling him the Warlord of Calgon because eventually he took it over. It, it seems like what's being described as as the warlord of Calgan is like the the myth of the mule that Magnifico is helping to promote, right? right. Now I'm hoping that we will actually get a mule like mule, and well, not and not someone like you know He Man but psychic who is. Um, I mean, in, in in Gail Dornick's voiceovers, she actually mentioned the mule. Yep. Yeah not the warlord of Calgon. So uh, yeah. that, that certainly makes me curious. Yeah. This, this might be taking us right up to, but not into the time of the mule. Maybe. They could be, be doing some backstory on Calgon before they... Right. But that's, that's, still plenty... a lot, that's still a lot more book than they um, they did in this first season. Although there's a lot of additional stuff that, that, that doesn't seem to come mm-hmm. from the book at all. True. Very interesting. Yeah, um, I, I'm guessing, I assume that this uh, sect of the Mentalics is meant second to foundation, be yeah. second foundation yeah. that I assume that tracks with everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And who do you think this Yana Selden would be? Well, <laughs> so I'm, you know, obviously a descendant of, of Harry somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. How would that work? <laughs> yeah, we, do know that, we do know that Harry in the prequels has an adopted daughter who, um, Rachel's daughter, mm-hmm. right? Who has mentalic abilities and teams up with Preem Palver's uh, ancestor, whose first name escapes me at the moment. Mm-hmm. That's all in Forward the Foundation, which we haven't gotten to yet. And so we could assume that there could be descendants of Harry, but Boy, that really seems kind of strange here because Harry doesn't really have any natural descendants and Rach is dead, apparently yeah. dead. And okay, so Gail, Gail's baby is Salver Harden, but how do we get the name Selden back there? I don't know. That That's a, I, I can't really work that one out. I don't well, know. Well, knowing the connection back to Selden, it might make sense for somebody to take the name given depending on what they wanted to do with it. I mean, Indira Gandhi took the name Gandhi, even though she was Nehru's daughter. I, I guess it was a married name too, but I, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I guess you, you can take on 
recognizable names in order to sort of take on the mantle of that person, I guess. Well, my hope is going to be that hologram Harry gets married. And so that Yana is- And has a hologram baby? (laughs) Well, maybe it's just his real life, is his uh, physical wife. I don't know. But- but (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's someone just, you know, con artist. (laughs) Someone around here is a con artist. Uh, Yeah, I know that, that, that- Raises a lot of questions, that cast list. I don't know what to make of it. Mm, well, we will keep reviewing all of the news and hints that Apple decides to drop our way, or not not our way, someone else's way, and then we'll, we'll pick up on what they report. Yeah, they don't report it. anything to us. Nothing comes our way. <sighs> I am, I am, uh, I continue to be comforted by the fact that Roxanne Dawson is continuing to work as a director on the show. As I've said many times, I felt like she saved season one, mm-hmm. or at least her episodes. I don't know if she did it personally, but her episodes, you know, after the kind of very disappointing episode seven, episodes eight and nine, which Roxanne Dawson directed, were extremely good and, and led into that, into the finale, which um, obviously David Goyer directed himself. But anyway, I, I hope that she directs as many episodes as she can stand. And, uh, and 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 it'll be a good season. So yeah, a lot of a lot of questions raised by this cast list. I, I I think though that if we had looked at the similar kind of announcements they made about the cast about season one, I think they did mislead a little bit. Uh, mm. And so they may be misleading again. Could be, could be tricky fellow that Goyer. Tricky, yeah, <laughs> tricksy. <laughs> what has it got in its pockets? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm looking forward to it. What I'd really like to get out of them is some kind of a date or an estimation, but that we did not get. I think they said possibly late 2022 or early 2023. Is that, is, do I remember that correctly? Or am I just making that up out of wishful thinking? I don't remember. I mean, we've been working under the assumption that maybe next September, but I don't recall seeing nice. anything official. Yeah, it would be nice. All right. Well, thank you, Dan, for the update on on the TV show. I hope we get more updates on a regular basis because I want season two. Bring it on, man. Let's go. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about Prelude to Foundation. Um, when when last we met Harry, uh, he had gone outside on, on Trantor and uh, couldn't find his way home, nearly froze to death, uh, came back in, got warmed up, uh, met a doctor who was very excited to see the first case of exposure he'd ever seen in Trantor, because of course nobody goes outside. And now we see Harry recovering and talking with Doors and the reappearance of Cheddar Humman, our mysterious stranger. And they talk about the first, the, this first section is so much the Asimov people in a room chatting. Mm. and not actually doing anything. They talk about every possible combination of conspiracy theory that this might be, who it might be. It's sort of an amusing exchange between Harry and Cheddar when Harry asks Cheddar what (laughs) Demerzel looks like and how would I know him if I saw him? And Cheddar just says, oh, well, you know, uh, you won't see him unless he wants you to, and by then it'll be too late. It hardly matters, I think, might have been the exact Yeah, something like that. So that was kind of amusing coming from Cheddar. You know, they talk about who it could have been, which other section of Trantor. There's an amusing little who's on first thing where 
Cheddar says it could be the mayor of Y, or it could be it could be Y, and Harry starts starts to explain why, and he has to say no, 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 it's W Y E Y. It's a place. It's not a not a question. Uh, and then who's on first? Yeah, basically. <laughs> and uh, so they talk about that. Then they have a, a a second long conversation, in which Harry talks about how he wishes he had more historical data, and is surprised to find out that a lot of the historical data of the empire and the pre imperial times has probably been lost that the that the material the, the matter on which it was stored has probably not lasted that the libraries have to make decisions about what to keep and what not to keep and that they don't necessarily uh, continue to store everything and it was interesting and probably true that libraries work that way uh, but it was odd to have such a long conversation about it it really took up a lot of space a lot of ink and I just found myself wondering, was this just something that Asimov was really interested in? Was it a pet peeve of his? I mean, as somebody who was rather prolific in writing, was he worried that people weren't going to save his stuff? I don't know. But uh, it, it took a very, very long time. And then finally, at the end, they decide they better leave Streeling University because there's probably a spy there who's reporting back to Demerzel. Nurk, nurk, nurk. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they better get out of there as soon as possible. And they racking their brains to figure out a place to go. And I think it's Doors who comes up with the idea of going to this place called mycogen, which we all know is a, is a word for yeast, I guess, in a language that's even now ancient here on Earth. But, but in, uh, in the future, it's super ancient. But they still know that there's a reference to it. And they decide they're going to go to mycogen. And Cheddar is not going to go with them because he's got to get back to work, you know, being a journalist. And, uh, <laughs> so uh, Harry and Doris leave at the very inconspicuous time of three o'clock in the morning. And they go for a long walk. And then they go for a weird plane ride, where the pilot kind of tries to make them sick or something. I don't know. You know, they talk about the wings of the plane, and they, they fly through holes in walls, and walls. Uh, and, and, and they land. And they meet um, a gentleman by the name of Sunmaster Fourteen, in a in a place, Mycogen, which turns out to be what like space Amish, I guess. Space Amish is exactly the word, <laughs> exactly the phrase that I had written down there. See, I I I always they struck me as like um, sort of like a, a weird version of ultra orthodox uh, Judaism, even even though they're violently opposed to religion. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, right. <laughs> we don't find that out for a while, but yeah, but yes, they they are, they don't consider th their behavior to be religious behavior. Yeah, um, they are trying to maintain themselves though as a separate community. And so, what does that involve? Right. It involves removing all of their hair, yeah, all of their what they call cephalic hair, which I guess means hair on your head. Mm -hmm. uh, they remove it all. Uh, they insist that Harry and Doors wear these skin caps, and we begin to get a a, a view of obnoxious Harry. What I'll what I'll call obnoxious Harry. Here he is, a refugee on the run, but he is insisting that uh, he be respected as a uh, as an honored guest, and he's not going to do the the things the traditional things that the Mycogenians do. He's not going to shave his hair off, which I mean it's a lot to ask, but he's not going to do that. He's you know they don't like talking to women. Well, they have to respect doors. And I understand that you want, you know, you want a woman to be respected, but he's very demanding and very obnoxious. And I just found myself saying, you know, why, why, 
would the mycogenians put up with this just like you know what if you don't like it just get out you just yeah. get out. So night, somebody get up and make me a sandwich yeah really exactly <laughs> and he he you know speaking of that he he does seem to be threatening to complain to the manager a lot he's he's karen he wants, he's, he's space this, karen. he wants to speak yeah. to your supervisor and he wants, <laughs> he wants a meal uh, he is interested, though. One of the reasons why he's interested in mycogen is because they have got a, uh, a historical tradition where they may have preserved some very ancient history that uh, that you can't get anywhere else. And so Harry is actually very interested in that. And he's interested in kind of wheedling out of the mycogenians some of the stories that they want to tell. And I, I marked a couple of passages because one of the things I want to talk about about obnoxious Harry is that the way Asimov plays the thing, he, he actually, he really makes Harry very obnoxious. And I think we're supposed to look at the, I think we're supposed to look at the Mycogenians through Harry's eyes at first and think of them as very uptight, ingrown is the word he keeps using. Uh, there's a, even Doris says it. She says, uh, these people are terribly ingrown. They're almost psychotic in their inward, inward clinging. I think we're supposed to look at them that way, but it's supposed to be slowly revealed that they're not actually uh, either as ingrown or as naive as we're originally led through Harry's eyes to, to, to believe that they are. Um, and that there's going to be a lot more of that. But in the meantime, I mean, there's the one quote where Harry says he's going to go, he's going to ask to go see their farms. One of the things that the Mycogenians are famous for is, are their, their yeast farms where they produce the tastiest food in the galaxy. He decides he's going to charm these two women, Raindrop 43 and Raindrop 45, who come to help them cook their food. And he says, um, if that's the one thing they're proud of, they should be willing to talk about it. And once I get them into a talking mood, then by exerting all my charm, I may get them to talk about their legends, too. Personally, I think that's a clever strategy. Yeah, but I, the, I, I think Asimov is making <laughs> Harry look like an idiot on purpose. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he's clearly clueless. And, and I, would, I would point out that's two separate plants. Right. I think he realizes that uh, they're proud of their farming. I'm going to talk to them about their farming doesn't work. And then he's like, well, they're going to send some ladies. I'm going to treat them like they're human beings. Right. No, and exactly. I, so I, I marked that quote off as well. Surely yeah. if we treat them as though they are human beings, they will be grateful enough to speak of their legends. <laughs> yeah. And it's so clear that that's not going to work <sighs> as soon as they arrive. But I think he's doing, I actually think Asimov is overplaying it on purpose because he is trying to make the point, I think, that, yeah. that these people, although they have what looks to us like very uptight and Amish sort of characteristics, that they're, yeah, like I said, they're, they're not as naive as Harry believes they are. And I, I, I still think he does it in a fairly clumsy way, but he does it. And, and of course, that comes out later on uh, in a section that we didn't read today, uh, where there's this whole thing with the hair, which will... Maybe we'll talk about that next time. The, the odd semi-sexual uh, experience that Harry has with one of the raindrops <laughs> to tease, yeah. I'll tease our next episode with that. You know, I, I would really love to hear a, what a gender theorist would have to say about this. So if, if there are any uh, gender theorists out in our <laughs> listening audience, uh, please feel free to drop us a line and let us know what you think about this. I, you know, it, it could be read in so many different ways. I mean, this this is being written in an age of American kind of gender relations in which there's a public assumption of 
that you know feminism is a real thing and that women do have rights uh, but there there is also still we're still away away off from some of the things that everyone takes for granted in 2022 and I don't know whether to read this as being the raindrops are smarter than Harry takes them for, and that's why his condescending attitude toward them fails, or these women are don't don't really want feminist liberation. Like they they just want to be devoted to their kind of brainwashed gender roles. I kind of go back and forth. And how how I see this, so I don't. I have no clue really what Asimov was trying to get at. I mean, it, it, it's weird because yeah, I mean, space Amish occurred to me, but the other thing that struck me, and at, at least one point, um, I, okay, because Sunmaster, uh, what is it, Sunmaster fourteen? Fourteen, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he <laughs> was occasionally just hilarious uh, with, with some of the things that he uh, the, the, that he came out with, Be, not because they were funny in and of themselves, but they were s- so skewed in, in one direction but but at some point he was talking and it reminded me of somebody telling a joke in the 80s about some native americans and doing the voice you know, oh my god uh, like you know few come mycogen few leave we make oh. you secure give house room um and and it just this is bizarre so during some of that i was i was wondering if if um Asimov was only oh, almost making a see I'm not such a misogynist ar- you know argument like you know because because Harry is clearly the Asimov standing right and yeah. and, and, and and you know he's championing doors and saying all oh, these 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 guys they've got to treat her with respect yeah you know that that kind of um language of like the the stereotypical language of like mm-hmm. you know the the way that um indigenous peoples were treated in the 80s with that kind of language that you know it's not exactly the same patois that Sunmaster uses but he is he his language use is marked off in that yep. i i know what you mean it's sort of like that fake stilted right. way right in which he's he i mean it's it's perfectly grammatical english but somehow asimov has created this version of english for his dialogue that marks him as yeah kind of like racially other even though we have no idea what his what his race is right for all we know the mycogens could be as racially diverse as anyone else on the planet but it it is you're saying some of them could be northerners some of them can be easterners (laughs) yeah yeah like we we, there are no northerners of course there are no northerners like sorry (laughs) mycogen is what it's it's maybe an ethnicity but it's not necessarily a racial category anyway but it's it it like it's somehow he is asimov has developed a kind of lingo for these people that is it it sounds kind of religious or it sounds kind of ethnically other in any case it it clearly marks them off in a way that's just as obvious as the lack of hair right right yeah so i i think what's happening here it's it's a little complex it's a little difficult to tease out and one thing before I say, I'll say this about that kind of that kind of feminism where uh, no, I don't mean feminism. I, I mean like there's this idea, for example, women who wear the hijab, that we have to respect the fact that 
a lot of women in those cultures want to wear the hijab. It's a complicated situation. We from the outside look at them and think they should have the choice, of course. You know, we, we like to think of them as oppressed, but it's more complicated than straight out oppression. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a cultural thing and it, it's, it's very nuanced. So I think that what Asimov is trying to do is present a group that obviously imposes a lot of restrictions on women. They're not allowed to speak to men. They're, they're you know, they're, they have certain very strict gender roles. But he's also kind of saying, well, maybe women in those cultures are not necessarily all just dying to get out of it and be, quote unquote, free. Yeah. So there is yeah. that element of it. Yeah. And there is Harry's desire for doors to be treated equally, mm-hmm. which I think is is sincere and legitimate. I just think that a lot of this is written by a guy who just didn't quite get it. And so all of that combines together to create this sort of melange, which just doesn't quite ring right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's a relief to me that the mycogenians don't match up exactly with any, with any earth culture. Cause if it, if it were a clear allegory for one or another actual human group, it would be terrible, right? The fact that this is purely fictitious makes it a little, maybe a little bit more palatable, although also a little bit easier to overlook some of the ways in which this is problematic. Yeah, but you can't deny, despite the fact that they originally said, oh, they're like Yankee traders, you can't deny some of the subtext of the Ferengi, and that is not, um, oh, Absolutely. I mean, and I think Armin Shimmerman in particular, we're going to the, going to the Ferengi because we got to have a Star Trek reference. Possibly not quite coincidental thing about the Ferengi is that so many of the actors who played Ferengi are Jewish. Right? <laughs> I mean, there's just no way around it. They, they just were. I mean, Armin Shimmerman, obviously, and, and Aaron Eisenberg and, and uh, Max uh, uh, Grodenchik, you know, the, the main Ferengi that we yeah. know are all of Jewish descent. But Armin Shimmerman, who actually played a Ferengi in the first Next Generation episode in which the Ferengi appeared, demanded that the Ferengi be treated somewhat in a somewhat more nuanced way mm-hmm. and that it, it, it tried to make it somewhat less blaringly anti-Semitic. Yes, yeah. Um, uh. and, and that kind of gave us the Ferengi that we got through mm-hmm. Deep Space Nine and, and, and on. It's just interesting to see the new Ferengi in Discovery. You see them in the background sometimes. Mm-hmm. There. Mm-hmm. Very interesting looking. I, I want to get a better look at a Ferengi character in Discovery. But that's for a different podcast, I guess. Indeed. <laughs> um, let me ask you, what do you think is behind Asimov's decision to make Harry such an asshole? <laughs> because you, you really put your finger on it, John. He, I mean, he's coming here as requesting, you know, at least like temporary political asylum. And he's, he's just acting like he's the boss and he's like, oh, by the way, I'm a friend of Cheddar Haman and you better do what I say or I'm going to tell him like how he does mean, it. You'll how pay. mean you were. You'll pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the hell? Like, what kind of refugee does this? It's like, don't you have some consciousness of the fact that you're a guest here and you should behave like a guest? I don't know. I think, I, I think part of what we're seeing here is Asimov's you know, clear disinterest in rewriting. <laughs> I mean, there, there, there's so much here that, that if he'd given it another, if he'd gone through it a second time, it could have been so much better. 
I mean, I, I don't know for sure. I mean, it, clearly we all agree that Harry is an Asimov stand-in to some extent. Mm -hmm. And I and I can't help thinking of someone we're going to talk about, God only knows when we get to it, Golan Treviz, who is the main character in the sequels, mm -hmm. who is, to my way of thinking, almost an identical character to this Harry. He's mm -hmm. very obnoxious and disagreeable and... Uh, he speaks in a sort of a stereotyped college professor speak mm. is the only way that I can describe it, which I think is maybe what Asimov thought that, I mean, as a sort of an academic, you know, not sort of, he was a real academic. I mean, he, mm. I think he, I think he thought that that's what the way academics speak. I, I don't know, but maybe, maybe just a little inkling of a theory here. I'm just going to throw this out Yeah, that maybe, you know, Asimov had this idea, like when he wrote his, I can't remember the dirty old man story about himself. He understood that the things that he was doing to women, like pinching their butts and, and you know, unwanted touching and kissing and things, he, he knew that it was not welcome, but he also felt entitled to it. Mm -hmm. And he, he's open about that. You know, he, he talks about how he just felt like that was something that he was, he deserved. And maybe he kind of felt like for the intelligent and academic and the people who are coming to save the world with their brilliance, maybe they're entitled to be a little obnoxious. I don't know. It, it, I'm just throwing that out there as a possibility. Well, I mean, yeah, since you mentioned it, this was the 80s. <laughs> okay. And, and, and I, I, I say that sort of flippantly, right? But there were a lot of people in the 80s that thought this is the way, you know, you know, if, 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 if somebody's not doing what I want, I'm going to get in their face. I'm going to you know, basically browbeat them into doing what I want them to do. And that was part of the culture when these were being. I guess the yuppies, you know, I mean, yeah, I knew a lot of Wall Street people who came out of that time. So Harry so Seldon, <laughs> Harry Seldon is a member of the Reagan revolution. I, <laughs> yes. And I'm pretty sure Asimov was not a fan. <laughs> well, yeah, he, he absolutely was. Actually, that, that was something that, that also sort of struck me that was odd. Um, which is, uh, I mean, we're kind of in a, on a thing, but you know, the the Mycogenians are like a a bad conservative caricature of what you would think a socialist society would turn out to be, right? With the homogeneity, with the enforced, you know, you know, the the enforced um, equality, even to the point where you know they're strictly re strictly restricting their 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 population, which made me think of China's one-child policy. Mm -hmm. Bum pretty sure that politically Asimov was on that side of the, I mean, on that side of the ledger to the point of, of being socialist. Right. And, and then his, his, I think that him making them viciously non-religious, I think was probably just kind of a twist because we all expect them yeah. to be yeah. right. Like evangelically religious, but in fact, they're rapidly opposed to that. I think that that idea of population control also, by the way, is another one that comes up a lot in, in Asimov. Uh, the spacer planets in Caves of Steel and, and uh, the Naked Sun strictly control their populations. Um, when people get married, they, they have to apply for children, even if they don't want children. And, and, and you can only have children if some central authority decides that there's room for a child. Uh, and so the spacer world's population stays absolutely steady. And, and one of the things they don't like about Earth is how Earth's population is spiraling out of control. I, I'm not sure which side Asimov came down on on that, really, which side we're supposed to think is better or whether we're supposed to think anything is better. But it was certainly a topic that was in his mind. You know, I think that 
this this is a legacy of the period, right? I mean, I I know that like worries about overpopulation was a huge thing in the the seventies and and the eighties. Like, was like some some book like was it the population bomb or something? Yeah, there was a lot, but yeah, that, uh, yeah. That was, like, I mean, this I, I I you know in that period, this was a serious social issue that you know was of major discussion among public intellectuals and I don't know if you'd hear it on whatever the McLaughlin group and argued or something but that was very much in the air in a way that it hasn't been for a while now yeah and yet you know we're um we're past the inflection point where the the population has to start the population growth has to start slowing down so we can you know ease into what's called the carrying capacity right the maximum number of people the planet can support Currently, I think the estimate is somewhere around 11, 10 and a half or 11 billion. That is not going to be a pleasant process. Although, you know, Joseph, uh, to contrast that, um, developed countries all face a problem of birth rate. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, and, and aging populations. And when did China formally abandon the one child policy? It was within the last five years. Wasn't yeah, it? it was not that yeah. long ago. Yeah, it was, it was quite recently. Yeah. The reason why is because they it's basic arithmetic if if they did the math on it and of course people were already not strictly following the one child policy but if they did then within a couple of generations china's population would plummet and that would be an economic disaster and it's going to be a difficult situation for japan it's going to be a difficult situation for the united states for europe all of these countries facing that issue i mean i actually had some very interesting conversations back in my wall street days with uh, in particular, one the, the central bankers from one country, which shall remain nameless, just for the hell of it, where um, you know they're facing this demographic time bomb, mm-hmm. and they need more young people. And you, you kind of say to them, "There's only two ways you can get more young people: you can make them yourself, which you're clearly <laughs> not doing, right. or you can import them from somewhere else." And they just looked at me blankly, like, "What? What? Whatever could you possibly mean?" Because there are certain countries in the world, and not just the United States, which view mm-hmm. immigration as absolutely just not an idea that they can, you know, that that non this country people can never be citizens of that country. And even though they desperately need it, they won't do it because it's not, it just doesn't occur to them. Mm-hmm. It's but Japan. It's, that was the country. It was Japan. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it. I think it's no secret that Japan has <laughs> has uh, had uh, a long running. Um, concern about uh immigration uh and that's been an issue for the country's politics so um, yeah but there's but there's no other place in the world where it's as tragic that attitude is so tragically ironic as it is in the united states well yes that's that's certainly true so i i guess what we what we have with getting back to foundation is kind of a mix of asimov being aware of these topics wanting to say something about him and i think just being pretty inept about it and not while while at one, at one point seeing his own limitations in an in another way just completely being blind to them yeah and that's that i think is why we got this comp- this very odd combination of of you know it looks like he's being introspective but he's just missing a whole yeah. bunch of stuff that that's that's my theory yeah i i i think that's fair um, and I think there's a lot about this that, you know, I mean, I, I find the whole Mike Jen episode uh, interlude fascinating. 
including especially maybe what we'll talk about uh, next time, the, the rest of the mycogen stuff. Um, but it, it, in many ways, it seems to be rushed a little bit in the writing, right? And in particular, like the rationale for being there just changes, right? At, at first, the reason they travel there is to escape the claws of Demersal, which is going to look weird in retrospect. <laughs> um, and then when, when they get there, you know, Harry keeps going around saying, oh, the only reason I came here is to, to get information for my project on, and I need to know what's up with you people. Yeah. yeah well, Which, I mean, they did, they did go to a lot of effort to sort of yeah. set that up. And by they, I mean he. Yeah, well, look, this whole project of how he's going to develop psychohistory is strange. This whole, I need history, I need to go back to a time when the empire was smaller. I, I'm trying to, you know, like on the one hand, psychohistory is a science of massive numbers of people. On the other hand, he's saying, I need fewer people to analyze. And I, that, that was kind of strange to me. Right. Um, this idea that he has to, you know, the doors keep saying, oh, look, those people do this thing. You can work that into psychohistory. And he keeps on saying, you know, I, I can't write a rule for every piece of behavior, yep. which is absolutely true. I mean, he, he needs to sort of discover those laws that Giscard, the robot, thought he could see in human brains in order to develop psychohistory. So this whole thing about, I, I, I don't get what it is that he's trying to do, and that's going to continue all the way through his development of psychohistory, that that uh, I, I mean, I understand that Asimov cannot actually tell us how it gets developed because he doesn't know. But it just this whole project just seems really strange. I don't know what's going on. And and you know, honestly, that that dialogue with him and Doris that you're referring to, in which he says, you know, I I can't make a rule for every little thing. I need general laws. You know, to to me, like that that is the most powerful statement of why why psychohistory wouldn't work right in the real world it just because you know and any historian is going to tell you that history happens in particularities right it doesn't happen in generalizations which is exactly what harry is demanding i mean that's kind of you know what history is in a, in a way is the record of individual things happening uh, in which one can discern patterns, sure, but one has to one has to get the details right. Overlooking details and just making blanket statements about how societies work is a terrible way to, to think about what social sciences actually do. Um, so this this is it's it's a really interesting moment for me. It it's important to the you know, the, the whole concept of psychohistory and this novel, its direction, but it's, it, it, it's very telling. It kind of like is, uh, I read it very pessimistically. Asimov kind of sort of had a clear idea of what psychohistory was about in Foundation. Yeah. And then he really seemed to hit the nail on the head in, in Foundation and Empire. Mm. It started fraying in, in Second Foundation. I mean, is this another one of those things like the board where the more we examine it, the less feasible it becomes? Yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> so, you know, lesson for sci-fi writers, keep your premises vague. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think I think there's no question about it that in trying to backfill the story, he just 
got himself painted into a corner that he could not get out of again. And he might, well, if he still had John W. Campbell, he might have done a better job of it. <laughs> you know, who knows? Although, uh, frankly, if John W. Candle, Campbell's own opinions and prejudices came through, then, you know, who knows what we would have gotten because the, he was a complicated person. <laughs> and too. some master may have even been more hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and again, you know, we're going to come back to this whole, uh, this whole theme of like stereotypes versus anti-stereotypes. You know, as we as as Harry moves forward to the next section of Trantor, where he's going to meet some new characters, uh, you know, and that's not going to be for a little while. But, you know, where all the men wear big, thick black mustaches and mm. like all the men wear big, thick black mustaches. And and again, people kind of get pigeonholed into these stereotypical forms of behavior, which is going to is in a way it's going to help Harry to develop psychohistory. But, yeah, it, it does seem kind of unrealistic in, in a lot of ways and like i, I don't know I, I mean i think these these prequels are very interesting in in that we take a character who was a an important character in foundation but we don't really know much about him and we get to see more of him but but what we see is just it just leaves us scratching our heads a, a thought that I've had, and I love Star Trek Lower Decks, but a thought that I've had about Star Trek Lower Decks is as much as I love it, it's way more about the fan service or the nostalgia than it is about the science fiction. Yeah. Could that be what's going on here? You know, <sighs> we want to relive the foundation. We want to go back to this thing that, the, the, you know, you, you've, won, you've won the Yugo for the best science fiction series of all time. Of course, you want to revisit it. Of course, people want to revisit it. It's going to put, you know, it's going to going to put dollars in the cash register yep um i mean in a much less positive way i think you're right i mean i think that lower decks is is made by people who clearly love all oh, yeah. of that nostalgia and are kind of reveling in it i i wonder whether asimov was reveling in things or whether he was kind of bitter at this point um you know he may have felt he may have felt like he was forced to write these these books or at least you know that people pestered him until he wrote them Mm -hmm. And also, uh, especially as we go further and further along, I mean, he was he started to get sick and he was dying. And, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think he had a few things he wanted to say first. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> It's too bad because I, I think that it's a missed opportunity because this could have been a lot more interesting. But I, yeah, I think it's very difficult. I think I think having set himself the task to say, well, I'm going to explain how Harry Seldon came up with psychohistory. He set himself an almost impossible task. It was a lot better when we saw Harry old and just said, yeah, I've got this thing called psychohistory that I developed. And you could just sort of nod your head and go, yeah, okay, fine, sure. Fine, fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's the old, it's better not to explain things. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. All right. Well, next time, I guess we're going to move forward more in mycogen. We're going to go see some farms. We're going to have some kinky hair sex i guess uh, <laughs> we're looking forward to that oh yeah uh we're going to uh actually get down to the nub of what's going on in mycogen and uh we're going to take a surprising turn i think towards uh towards robots so we have all that to look forward to we do can, can i throw out one other thing oh that... please do please throw in anything <laughs> well it's just okay it, it, in that long conversation about um you know, the records, you know, you know, basically records fading away and not having a complete, re um, uh, complete record of history. Doors says, quote, undesired knowledge is useless knowledge. 
And I don't know how that would have struck me in 1989, but that just seems like we could spend an entire, we could spend an entire episode talking about that one sentence in the context of 2022. Yeah, no, I maybe agree I'll, with maybe you Maybe I'll there. just let's, let that sit there and fester. <laughs> yeah, and I, I also think that the idea that you, when you run out of storage space, you just start erasing things. I'm not sure that's the way it really works. I think what really happens and what has always happened is that you move from, you move to cheaper, less accessible, but easier to store forms of storage. You know, like you move from hard drives to magnetic tape or something like that. You know, you, you, and you still want to store it. Now it's true that over thousands of years, conflicts come along, places burn down, permanent storage gets lost. But the idea, I mean, I think Doris says something about how they throw away useless knowledge every 10 years. Well, you know, I'm not so sure about that. It, it seems to me that there would be an effort to, to put things in more permanent forms of storage that could be accessed if somebody needed to. That making, like you say, Joseph, making the determination, what's useless knowledge that we can just throw away. I, that, that didn't strike me as the way people really behave. Yeah, but it didn't set up a reason to go to mycogen. It did. Although I'm not sure how useful, you know, the Mycogenian, like, like how useful legends are going to be. Right. But we'll get there when we get there. We'll get there when we get there. And we know Harry's going to develop psychohistory because, because we read Foundation. We know That's right. This there. is a prequel. So <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> how, oh, how, how, do, how can you guys predict the future like that? Well, <laughs> I have this little mathematical tool. That's right. Oh, but you know, you didn't mention the one thing you didn't mention, Dan, was the photograph that we got from season two of Foundation. Yes. Well, photographs aren't really a great uh, thing for podcast medium. <laughs> no, but it's, it's, um, it's but Brother Day. Yeah. Angrily pointing at Harry somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which Harry that is, we don't know. With the prime radiant in his hand mm-hmm. and Demerzel in the background. Mm. Maybe we could put a link to that photo. I will. I will sure throw, we have to. Yeah. We have to. I will put the the I will put the image itself in the the, uh, the page for this episode. Well, I'm I'm out. <laughs> I'm done. I've said everything I came here to say. Okay, so guys. Any 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 last any last thoughts, Dan? Any moments of levity you want to bring in? Well, I I don't have I, I just have one question, right? Yes. Uh, and that is maybe it's a question for for our audience. I'd, I'd like to hear their opinions, which is. How do the mycogenians feel about body hair? Because we're only told that they get rid of their cephalic hair. Mm. And I'm curious, you know, would Sunmaster 14 have a hairy chest? Mm. Is that legitimate but distasteful? I want to know. And Asimov, what kind of kink do the, do the mycogenians have about their hair? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we should throw that open <laughs> to whoever wants to talk about mycogenian body hair. Yeah. <laughs> all right well on that note i guess we will wrap this up and start reading again until we get together again in two weeks to talk about more about hygiene and their cephalic hair and their non-cephalic hair well that brings this week's episode to a close thanks for listening if you enjoyed the podcast Subscribe and give us a like and a positive review on your favorite platform. You can also visit our website at starsendpodcast.wordpress.com where there's always additional content. 
Our music, used by a Creative Commons license, is It Is Coming by Alex Mason. Also, follow us on Twitter, at Stars End Podcast. Goodbye for now from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end.